This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Samantha Olds Fry, CEO of Illinois Association of Medicaid Health Plans. Samantha, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I know we have a lot to talk about. There's so much happening right now around Medicaid redeterminations, especially. But before we dive into my questions, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yes, I am the CEO of the Illinois Association of Medicaid Health Plans. I focus exclusively on Medicaid policy here in Illinois. I've been in this role for about 10 years. And prior to that, I worked for the state of Illinois, focusing on health and human service, both uh, appropriations work, so budget work, and uh, public policy and substantive work. So really, my entire career has been spent on Illinois Medicaid, and I am passionate about it and really excited to be talking with you guys. That's great to hear. And you know, having spent your entire career really focused on Illinois and Medicaid in particular, what really inspires you to continue this work every single day? What sparks your interest and really is your motivator to do such important work? Although I can imagine it can definitely be a grind from time to time. There are days it is absolutely a grind, um, but it's the member. As a Medicaid member here in Illinois, about a third of our population relies on the Medicaid program for their healthcare safety net. Uh, just like nationally, 50% of births are supported by the Medicaid program. So one out of every two babies taking their first breath of life is supported on by the Medicaid program. And then, of course, Medicaid is the largest payer for long-term care and behavioral health care and the largest payer for children in our state. And so I really feel like if Medicaid can be structured right, if we can move the needle on improving healthcare outcomes, we can improve the lives of our neighbors and of our communities. And so even though it's a grind and even though it's hard, the promise of impacting so many people's lives so positively is what keeps me going. Well, that's really great to hear and definitely something to to inspire others to go down this path. Now, can you tell me a little bit about what you're seeing with Medicaid redeterminations? What do health plans need to know? So Medicaid redeterminations here in Illinois and across the country are getting ready to gear back up. And there's a lot that, that we know and that we're sort of thinking about in this space. So redeterminations is something that happens in Medicaid, you know, Annually, everybody has to go through a process to ensure they're still eligible for Medicaid. And that has been on pause for three years, which means a lot has happened in between when states were doing redeterminations and, and now. And so sort of getting those bureaucratic machines up and running again, if you will, takes a lot of work. And there's a lot to sort of get through. So here in Illinois, our letters are getting ready to mail in about the a month or so, and members will have a month to respond to those letters, and the state will have essentially another 30 days to process those um, those applications and determine if members are still eligible or not. That sounds pretty simple until you think about how many folks there are. So we have um, nearly 4 million people now on the Medicaid program in Illinois. And a lot has happened in those three years. I joked at my Christmas card list, I swear half of those folks have moved and I had to update addresses and I'm surely not alone. And so 
you know, making sure we have the addresses right of Medicaid members, making sure they know that they need to respond to this paperwork, uh, making sure that they complete all of it. It's just a lot. And so first and foremost, I think it's a recognition that this is a, a large undertaking and that we're all a little rusty on it, right? Medicaid members haven't gone through this in three years. The state haven't gone through this in three years. Health plans haven't helped folks with this for three years. And providers haven't been doing it for three years. So we're all a little rusty. And, and there's been a lot of movement. The other thing is that we know historically that there have been challenges in this space. There have been challenges in folks getting their paperwork back and it being processed timely. People have lost coverage and then come back and there's sort of been a churn. And we anticipate that history will serve as a guide and we'll experience some of that as well. And so depending on your state, it'll be important that you know what it means if somebody falls off due to paperwork and how they'll be coming back to your plan. And then also making sure your providers know that. So here in Illinois, folks have 90 days to be reinstated to the Medicaid program. And if they are reinstated within that 90 days, they're actually going to go back to their original health plan. And it'll look as though there was continuous coverage for that time period. That's wonderful from a coverage and a member perspective. But what it does mean is there's going to be some retroactivity with claims. And that's, you know, just going to cause some issues. And so making sure providers know about that retroactivity, making sure you as a health plan have a process to handle those retroactive claims. For example, if somebody received a service that would have required a prior authorization during that time period, but the provider didn't receive a prior authorization because it didn't appear as though the member was enrolled in your health plan, What is your process going to be to handle that? Um, There's just a lot you're going to have to figure out from an operational standpoint with that retroactivity that we're going to experience. I do think the retroactivity um, in the long run is beneficial to make sure that people have coverage and there's continuous enrollment. It'll also help with HEDIS, but there are operational things you're going to need to solve for. That's going to lead me into my next thing, HEDIS. I think next year is just going to look a little weird. As we all know, continuous enrollment is needed for HEAS measures um, and for folks to be counted both in the numerator and denominator. And we're not going to know until the end of the year, really, what it, where our targets are, because people are going to fall off of the health plans, you know, really every month. And we're not going to know, are they going to come back on and be, you know, sort of that continuous coverage. And so it's just going to be a noisy year for data. And we won't know, in my opinion, where our quality scores are or what to expect until the end. And so that, you know, is just going to be challenging for our quality team, especially because people are going to lose coverage as well. So not only are they going to be dealing with not knowing where their metrics are, but there are probably going to be situations where people are receiving treatment and and lose coverage during that treatment and then potentially come back on and, and sort of that, again, operational challenge. So a lot on that front. And then on the finance side, both at the health plan, but also at the provider side, there's just going to be a lot. Members, unfortunately, are going to lose coverage. We we know members um, aren't, there are going to be members that aren't eligible for Medicaid. Um, you know, over the past three years, they got a raise, they, um, you know, got a promotion, they're making more money now, they're no longer eligible for the Medicaid program. 
that is wonderful for their life circumstances. We are going to hopefully get them on to exchange plans, or maybe they already have other health care coverage. But there are also members who are going to lose coverage simply because of paperwork. And those, of course, are going to be a challenge. And, and so the health plans will lose premium payments for members who lose coverage. And that will, you know, impact them. And of course, we anticipate that acuity of our membership is going to increase because people who are going to lose coverage tend to be, not exclusively, but tend to be healthier, younger adults um, that just aren't paying as much attention. Then the next thing, of course, so that's going to be the impact of the health plan. The providers, though, especially our safety net providers, that's what keeps me up at night. Because while the health plans are going to lose that revenue, they're also going to lose the costs associated with covering the care of those members. The providers, especially our FQHCs, safety net hospitals, and behavioral health providers, are still going to be seeing some of these patients, but they're going to lose the revenue associated with their coverage. So FQHCs and safety nets have to serve these people no matter what but they're not going to have Medicaid to pay for it. Maybe they they have a sliding fee schedule, but what, you know, what does that, does that really cover the full Medicaid reimbursement? And these are the same providers that are really hanging on by a thread right now, the workforce shortages and the pandemic and burnout, everything has really stretched our safety net community. And here we are about to sort of stretch it further. And the hope is of course that we stretch it and then we don't rip it. And so that is a concern there. Um, and then really, you know, how do we just make sure that as we learn more, as we go through this process, that there's that open line of communication um, with the state, with our providers, with the stakeholders, with the members, and that we're all on the same page. I anticipate that what we know today is really going to change come September, October, November, not because I have some crystal ball, but my hope is that we'll just learn things and that we'll have to adapt our plans. And so just making sure we have that open line of communication and are able to communicate with all impacted in a timely, clear, and concise fashion is going to be critical for all that we're about to take on. That's fascinating. What a great overview of the perspective from so many different constituents with this Medicaid redeterminations, especially this year, as you mentioned, after it not happening for a couple of years during the pandemic. And so I'm interested, especially when you were talking about those safety net providers, I can imagine there's a lot that they have to consider um, when they're treating patients across the spectrum. And so, you know, for, for those who are working within that space and really trying to make sure that they're caring for their communities, but at the same time, will need to also um, have the, the ability financially to stay afloat, what are you seeing them doing and how can they really protect themselves as they're also able to or, or trying to figure out how to care for their community members who um, are Medicaid beneficiaries and, and may fall within um, some of those who, uh, you know, will would fall out of the, the ranks for one reason or another? Yes, my all this is an all hands on deck situation. And so my thought is reach out to those members, you know, reach out to your patients. Let them know 
first how they can update their address with their state agency and that it's important that they do so. Let them know why, that it is about maintaining their coverage, especially after the last federal administration. There's just a lot of hesitancy with sharing information with the government um, in certain communities, especially. So just make sure you're telling them why they need to update their address and that it's important. Second, make sure they know their redetermination date. This is something that's really critical. The Urban Institute did a study and found that 60% of Medicaid members don't even know that redetermination is coming up. And so we're seeing, thankfully, a boom in communication and, and discussions, much like this one, about redetermination. However, the dates are really specific. I use the reference of, of May 1st, letters are going to start going out, but those letters are going to go out for 12 months. I don't have, for a podcast like this, the ability to really share individual members' dates. However, providers have that information. So let, let their patients know your redetermination letter is going to be coming in June or July or August. Be on the lookout for it. And then once that time comes, remind them, connect them with somebody that can help them, either somebody within the provider's organization or a community-based organization nearby, even their health plan or the Department of Health Care and Family Services or uh, Human Services. And, um, you know, just remind them, text them, call them. Um, train your frontline staff, you know, your receptionist, your registration, to make sure you're sharing that information on a regular basis. I think this is one of those topics that people really can't hear enough about. And so I think everybody being, you know, on the same page, update your address. Here's when your information is coming. If you need help, let us know. I think those are really the three simple messages. That's really helpful to know, and thank you so much for going through that. Now, what are some of the other big healthcare trends that you're following right now? What do you really see as top of mind for you? There's so much going on right now. Um, it's really exciting to be in the healthcare space. I think I don't know that we can go a day and definitely not a week without talking about health-related social needs and social determinants of health or health influencers and just the recognition that housing and food and transportation all impact your healthcare outcomes. And how can we sort of in the traditional healthcare setting strengthen our social safety net so people both have what they need as a from a human perspective, but also we of course see that when people have a place to sleep and food to eat, that their healthcare outcomes improve. So how do we blend that without sort of medicalizing the social safety net. And that's a real trick. And there, there's a real challenge and a tug and a pull on that. But I do, we spend a lot of time talking about that. And I, I foresee that conversation to continue to be um, on the forefront for the next year or to, for the next several years, to be perfectly honest. We also here in Illinois continue to talk about value-based care and healthcare transformation and what does that look like? Um, 
And, and I do think that that's going to be really interesting when you couple that with redetermination, because much like what I talked about, where HEDIS is going to sort of create this interesting data situation, I think we're going to see that with our value-based relationships as well in the next year, where the no- data is just a little noisy. And my hope is that we can just acknowledge that and not necessarily um, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater uh, because I suspect we're just going to have some outcomes that look a little wonky next year. I don't know what they're going to be, but I think, you know, we're going to see some stuff there. And so those are the things that we're really tracking. Here in Illinois, we are continuing to sort of look at additional coverage, um, regardless of documentation status. We cover individuals um, 0 to 19 and then 42 and above. So we have a donut hole um, that is being, you know, discussed of how do we maintain coverage for everybody that lives in Illinois, regardless of documentation, and what does that look like? So we're sort of discussing that as well, um, along with workforce. You know, we have just seen workforce shortages, workforce challenges, um, pipeline challenges, and I just don't know that we foresee any quick fixes to that. We're really lucky in Illinois. Um, we have about $450 million to invest in the healthcare workforce and, and trying to determine and develop a really meaningful, impactful plan that will address some of our systematic systematic challenges. Um, I, I'm hopeful for that, but I, I think we're not alone in, you know, what are the challenge, you know, workforce challenges and how do we address them? Um, how do we have everybody practicing at their the top of their license? Um, how do we have everyone working together and not duplicating services because we definitely can't afford to do that in a situation where we just have a limited workforce. So there's a lot on our plate right now. Absolutely. I can imagine. It sounds like in the middle of all the different things going on, whether it's looking at the redeterminations and trying to figure out, as you mentioned, the data, the value-based care, and then the workforce shortages. I know every healthcare dollar is precious and every resource in healthcare is extremely precious, especially if you're thinking about the communities who need care most and need improved access to care. And, you know, um, from that perspective, I love when you were talking about some of the different ways that you're able to connect with the community and improve that uh, social safety network that you have, not only through the traditional healthcare means, but other partnerships and organizations. So I'm wondering, you know, is there anything that you've seen work particularly well, whether it's messaging to the community or, or a type of a organization or partnership that's been really beneficial? There's a lot. I mean, the plans here in Illinois have been really innovative. Um, I would say the first thing that they do is they show up. I mean, they, they're in these communities. They're meeting with these community-based organizations. You know, they discuss open-ended conversations um, where there's that back and forth instead of, a, you know, sort of a top-down, I need you to fix this problem for me um, approach, which just doesn't work. Um, we have several health plans that partner with the Cook County Flexible Housing Pool and essentially pay for housing for, um, you know, a, a period of time. And I'm sure it's not a surprise to your listeners, but the outcomes of that funding have been amazing. We've seen de- they've seen decreased hospitalizations, increased adherence to medications, um, you know, increased stabilization, decreased costs. I mean, and to say nothing of just the lives of those individuals are better and their their quality of life is better. They're happier. They, they report 
um, just feeling better about themselves and, and regaining relationships with family and friends. And so that has been amazing. Um, and we have several plans doing that work with Cook County Flexible Housing Pool. And the and they're also looking at how how they can do that work outside of Cook County. We have plans that are doing amazing work with um, food pantries and uh, amazing work with community-based organizations around food and access to food and delivering meals, um, both to individuals who, you know, pregnant individuals, individuals with diabetes, um, and, and really and tailored meals as well to make sure that they're meeting their healthcare needs and measuring those outcomes. And of course, again, not surprising to your listeners, if people have access to healthy food, their health conditions improve. And this is really near and dear to us, you know, talking about partnerships, recognizing that no single entity is going to solve all of this. Um, it really does take a partnership. And so that's why here at IMHIP, we're actually having a conference in in September focused on partnership and what we can do together. Um, and really a lot of these pilots and programs will be focused on there in September because again, partnership is, is going to be key. It's not only key for redeterminations, it's going to be key for value-based care. It's key um, it's absolutely key for addressing social-related health needs. Um, it, it takes all of us to solve these complex problems. And health plans are going to have some of the information and some of the resources. And community-based organizations absolutely have some of the solutions and resources. I mean, they've been in these communities sometimes for, you know, over a century. They know what they're doing and what it really just takes is a partner willing to listen. I love that. What an amazing message. And, you know, before we wrap up our conversation, I just have one more question for you. What advice do you have for aspiring healthcare leaders today? Oh, I love this question. I would say stay curious. Um, you, we never know all of the answers and we can always learn from what another state is doing, what another organization is doing, even sometimes what another sector is doing. And stay compassionate. It's so easy to get stuck in that grind. I mean, Lord knows I do some weeks, but stay compassionate. Remember why you entered this space and um, spend time when you haven't been, you're not as new, talking to those who are just entering the space. It's amazing to see how hopeful and passionate they are. Um, and hopefully it'll keep your spark alive. I love it. Samantha, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fun and inspiring conversation, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute blast.